Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Warren, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and rewarding our favorite films of each year starting in 1928. We will discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate, and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. The amount of categories will also grow over time as a sort of tie-in to the Academy's evolution over time. With all that said, I would like to welcome my latest guest, Kieran B. He's the co-host of the Best Picture podcast. Kieran, it's an honor to have you on here, and I'm glad to be talking with you today. Gabe, bro, I'm I'm pumped, man. I'm excited for this. Um, thank you know, thankful that you had me on here. I got to dive into some 1935 movies. Uh, I got a whole week's worth of them, so I'm ready to go and discuss them all with you. Yeah. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever watch another Broadway melody, but here I am again watching another Broadway melody. So yeah. we'll uh, talk about that and much more, I'm sure. So, yeah. So how are you doing today? How's your day been? I'm good. It's uh, it's been hot up here in the northeast of the United States, but at the same time, it's, uh, I'm a summer guy over a winter guy, so I'll take the heat over the cold any day. Uh, yeah. But it's been uh, it's been pretty good. It's cooled down a little bit, so we've we've got a nice uh, July summer Thanks. weather here. Yeah. So today we are going to be talking about the films of 1935, and I think I would start off by asking you. What were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible? This applies to any film that was released in 1935, but was not on the reminder list of eligible releases for 1935. Yeah, so, I mean, most of the movies that I hadn't seen this year that I was looking to dive into were actually on the eligible list. So there really wasn't anything that wasn't on that, elig that list of eligibility for the Oscars that uh, really caught my eye here. So I'm pretty much going in with everything that the Academy was looking at for this awards. And I'm pretty much in the same position, I think. Cool. So, with that said, I think it's time to dive into our nominees. Let's dive. Starting with film editing and ending with picture. Okay, so for film editing, I have the five nominees in alphabetical order. I have The 39 Steps, Dangerous, The Informer, Mutiny on the Bounty, and Night at the Opera. Um, starting with 39 Steps, I mean, it's a, it is a thriller and a chase-oriented movie, and the way that they piece together those chase scenes, whether he's running through the train or running through the countryside, uh, really kept things moving very briskly, and uh, it's, a, it's an airtight runtime, too. I think, you know, the, the whole film... It's just wonderfully put together, and it really starts with the editing for me. Uh, Dangerous was kind of like a little bit of a surprise inclusion here for me in this one. I just really thought the whole story was told super compact, and while it you know, wasn't what I thought was one of the very best movies of this year, I think it really did a nice job of storytelling and, again, keeping a real airtight runtime. And uh, it kept me engaged the whole time, good acting, and it was, uh, the good acting was enhanced by, by excellent film editing. The Informer, again, put together in a in a very tense, uh, a tense way that that kept the story moving and kept you involved with this guy's uh, unfortunate plight. 
whether it was his fault or the fault of, of uh, his surroundings. Um, Mutiny on the Bounty, for me, is you know such a big project that they had to endure getting that boat out in, into the open water as well as using this, the shots of the boat from in the studio, uh, doing the England scenes, putting those together along with the scenes from the island and having to deal with a ton of lost footage as well that they had to then reshoot and put together again. I think it was like a massive undertaking. So I had that in there. And um, finally, uh, Night at the Opera, something I think you guys mentioned last in last week's episode uh, or in the last two weeks uh, about how, how important film editing is with comedy and with delivery of comedy. Uh, I think you and your guests both brought that up and, and that really shined through in Night at the Opera too when you're also implementing the musical end of things on top of it piecing the two together, the comedy, the quick, witty dialogue, along with the musical production, I, I thought that uh, deserved inclusion here as well. Agreed with all that. So, my nominees are David Copperfield, The Informer, Les Miserables, Mutiny on a Bounty, and Top Hat. I think with the first three nominees, there's a good understanding of how to knit together just a solid adaptation of a novel and bringing it to the big screen and telling it in a compact manner. And same with Mutiny All Around for that matter. But I think the first three in particular have sort of a similar through line in terms of the sort of economic quality that they have to the production. And then Mutiny on a Mountie, like you said, big undertaking. It is like this epic, big budget adventure prestige film that was so popular in the 1930s. And they had to reshoot all that lost footage and keep cutting back between ship to ship. And really convincing you that this is an adventure worth taking. And then Top Hat, they have to cut together all these marvelous dance sequences, and of course, the main selling point is Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, but it's also an editor's job to make those sequences look as appealing as possible in my opinion. Yeah, good good choices there. Top Hat was actually like just missed for me. That was my sixth, that would have been my sixth place one. Like I, I had, I was juggling that one in and out and, and just I went away with it here where I went with it in some other categories. But yeah, I I, I can totally see, uh, see your stance there on all those five. Yeah. So next is best cinematography. Cinematography, and this is a big category here, Gabe, because this is, oddly enough, it's the only category in the history of the Oscars where none of the nominees won. So, like, I think they're, they were doing write-ins here, and there were a bunch of write-ins this year, and I think this is the first time in Oscar history that a write-in actually won the Oscar. So, basically, the nominees that they put forward to the Academy, the Academy just blew right past and, and picked others. And I think that that's, to me, is, is like, I look at the, the movies they picked to nominate, and I look at some of the cinematographers and the work that they would go on to do, and to see they totally botched this category. And uh, I'm happy, this is what I think what your podcast is all about, is finding these categories here that 
you look at and you say, this needs to be improved. And this, to me, I think in all the years you do this, this category right here in 1935 will be one of the key ones. So here, that being said, here are my nominees. I have um, uh, Bernard Knowles for the 39 Steps. I have uh, Joseph H. August for The Informer. I have Greg Toland for Les Miserables. I have Arthur Edison for Mutiny on the Bounty. And I have David Abel for Top Hat. And again, all these guys, the, the quality they worked at, I mean, I'm going to start with the great Greg Toland for Les Miserables. I mean, he would go on to do three movies in the top, the AFI Top 100. Best Years of Our Lives, Grape, Grapes of Wrath, and arguably the most innovative and revolutionary shot movie in the field of cinematography in Citizen Kane, which didn't win an Oscar somehow. I don't understand that for cinematography. Uh, he would... Uh, Tolan would end up going on a win for Withering Heights, which is another another good one too. So, uh, it's crazy to me again that he was actually nominated this year. He was the one that I have here that was nominated but didn't win. Uh, I also uh, Arthur Edison for Mutiny and the Bounty. He went on to shoot Casablanca. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and before that he shot All Quiet on the Western Front. He did All Quiet on the Western Front. Also, he also did Frankenstein. I mean, it's he did just Falcon. Yeah, and Maltese Falcon. Yeah, and Maltese Falcon. So it's just, it's nuts to me. And if you watch Beauty and the Bounty, I mean, I think maybe we have the benefit all these years later. But if you watch it in 2021 and watch how they use the cameras outside the ship, inside the ship, move, it's, it's just, it's wild to me that no one looked at this and thought it should be nominated for cinematography. Um, you know, David Abel doesn't quite have the, uh, for Top Hat, doesn't quite have the Oscar resume, wouldn't go on to be nominated for anything. But really, I mean, everything you said with film edit editing and Top Hat, I think I can also apply with cinematography. I mean, they did a great job of not making it just look stagey or uh, or this whole thing is just, we're, we're just presenting you another Broadway melody type of movie. It really brought you into a very bright set. And whereas the next two nominees there, 39 Steps, and um, the informer did the opposite, where they brought you into that dark and dingy world where you're, you're, whether it's 39 steps and you're with the character running through, being chased through all these, these nighttime scenarios, whether it's the train or, again, the countryside, and the informer where you're just in the streets in the gutter, just you know, hiding, from, <laughs> hiding from both sides of the war, basically. Uh, it's 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 pretty wild stuff. So I, I liked all of those. Um, I have to mention, you know, the Bernard Knowles, who did 39 Steps, didn't have like a major Oscar run either, did a lot of TV work. I think Alfred Hitchcock has a lot of involvement when it comes to cinematography. So he was probably very hands on when it came to that. Um, Knowles did do The Magic Bow, which was up for a Palme d'Or. Um, but uh, and, and Joseph H. August for The Informer would go on to get nominated. But I, I thought it's I thought. All of those guys just did such a tremendous job, and it's a shame and a crime that, that, that they just got passed over this year. Yeah. All those movies are gorgeous looking. And easy to tell apart from each other, I'd say. So, my nominees are Bride of Frankenstein, The Informer, Les Miserables, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and the 39 steps. So, with Bride of Frankenstein, you can see why John John J. Mescal was such an influential figure within the horror movie genre. Like, 
he has he employs so many techniques that would be utilized in so many future horror movies, like the use of shadows and other terminology that I'm not remembering or I just don't know. And then the informer. It's just haunting to look at the way the church is lit, the use of light, the use of darkness without being poorly lit. And then Les Miserables has all the Greg Tolan trademarks, the deep focus, and the angles. And then A Midsummer Night's Dream. This was like the write-in that won the Oscar, and then they discontinued that for good reason, but it looks gorgeous. I love the cinematography here. Like, all the sets look amazing. I just love how it looks. And then the 39 Steps is just a masterclass in just using the environment around, no, the environment of the movie, using the surroundings and the settings, and making them look as eerie as possible. Yeah, well said, for sure. And uh, I, I mean, you just said it with the shadows and and the, the eeriness. And I think that applies to both Third Nine Steps and and the Informer because they take you on journeys. And and the Informer, especially, it's you really. You really get stuck in there with the characters in that one. I think that's a major credit to the cinematography. Bride of Frankenstein actually just missed for me, too. That was my, my sixth placer. Uh, great great job by uh, Mescal there, Jay Mescal. So next is Best Sound Recording. Best Sound Recording, another great category this year, man. I mean, I had a hard time narrowing this down to five, and... I think in like the thirties, it's kind of tough. It, it It's tough at first to say, all right, well, I got to pick the sound recording out. And then you watch some of these movies and, and note the ones that really stand out and you go, Oh my God, you know, now I, I, I can pick it out easy. And so this is how I went. I went uh, 39 steps. I went the bride of Frankenstein. I went mutiny on the bounty. I went night at the opera and I went top hat. So those are the five, uh, the, Five movies I went after there. I look at Bride of Frankenstein and just see everything that they're doing with the horror genre there and bringing it to the main stage in to be something that's going to transcend the genre. And I don't know if they quite knew that that movie would last and stand the test of time that it did. But if if there's one area where it really starts with, it's the sound there. And uh, from from the screaming to the to the chasing, to the um, the electricity uh, of the machine, the machinery, and and bringing bringing the Bride of Frankenstein to life, um, this this falling off of the towers, all, all of the stuff is just to me was a, an easy choice here. Uh, Night at the Opera, I I the one scene I really hone in on is where um, Chico Marx is, Marx is playing the piano. And just, you can, there's so many, one of the things that really annoys me in some of these movies is when you get lip syncing or fake playing of instruments and it's just very obvious and they haven't sunk things up right. You even get it in modern day movies too. too. 
it was just so authentic watching him play the piano, watching the crowd react, and in, including including the the music in the background throughout that whole movie. So that alone got it a nominee there for me. Uh, Thirty nine steps, just the use of of little pieces of sound to create tension, whether it's the whistling or the scratching of something or the howling of the sheep or the goats. Uh, just it, it, great, great little moments in that movie that that really bring the sound to life. Uh, Top Hat, I think, goes without saying. I mean, just a, a wonderful music musical production. And also, uh, finally, Muting Muting the Bounty, where I watched this movie. I mean, I've seen Muting the Bounty several times at this point, but after watching Captain Blood and then watching this again, seeing the two side to side, you just really felt like you're out to sea at times in, in Mutiny and Bounty. And that's not so easy to capture from an audio standpoint. And again, you're playing in those three different settings of the, you're playing in like the chamber rooms of England, you're out at, you're out at sea in, uh, on the ship, and then you're on the island. And to bring that all together, I thought they did a, a pretty nice job there. So I, I got my nominee there as well. Nice. I agree with all that. So, my nominees for sound recording are Bride of Frankenstein, Captain Blood, Mutiny on the Bounty, The 39 Steps, and Top Hat. Like you said, it was Bride of Frankenstein, and like all the little things going on, like the screaming and the electricity and the so many different things the monster effects it's just you can hear the future movies that it would influence and inspire and then Captain Blood I wasn't too enthralled with the movie but I liked the way that it sounded like the action scenes were were really well done. And then Mutiny on the Bounty, I think, does its epic adventure thing better than Captain Blood. And just the battle scenes sound amazing. And then the 39 Steps, it's just a perfect action suspense thriller, and you need a lot of good sound recording to back that up. And then Top Hat, has to make the music sound good. Has to make Rogers and Astaire's voices sound good. Has to capture the tap dancing, make that click. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, we're on the same page with that for sure. So next is best art direction. All right, best art direction. I had Ride of Frankenstein, Mutiny on the Bounty, Top Hat, The Informer, and 39 Steps. So when it came to the visual and audio ones, you're hearing me say a lot of the same movies. And um, it's not out of not exploring a, the whole the whole list of things that were out there. There's, there. There was a common thread here with these movies is there were some movies this year that were the presentation was just next level. And, and in, in a year like 35 or in a decade like the 30s, that sort of stuff can stand out to me. And uh, these five movies are just, you know, continuative. We, the, the set pieces 
of Bride of Frankenstein, you know, whether it's the miniatures of the castle or, uh, and again, they're not playing in the same world for the whole movie. They have you, they have you in, in Mary Shelley's, uh, in the very beginning of the movie, they have her in her, uh, her mansion on the hill. And then they're bringing you out to the cottage. And then they're bringing you up to, the, to Dr. Frankenstein's lair. And then they have you out on the fields with the burning, the burning village. And it's, they, they, they went out of their way to give you as much as they could visually. And they, and they did it through the set pieces for me. So that, uh, that was there. I talked a lot of the stuff I've said with Muting the Bounty about its, its sound production and camera work. Uh, a lot of it is related to, to the set pieces they were able to use. I mean, that ship looks legit. It really looks legit. And while I think, as you said, you know, Captain Blood nailed on, nailed it with the action sequences and, uh, and, and the pacing was really exciting and it was an enjoyable movie to watch. I just thought Muting the Bounty looked better at every step of the way. It looked and sounded better to me. Uh, Top Hat is just a beautiful looking movie. Uh, I mean, uh, all, all of that Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers stuff really came to a head there with Top Hat. And, uh, We've said it a few times here with the Informer and the 39 Steps. If you're going to create that drudging ambiance of the Informer to really kind of bring the audience down into the underworld with, with this man and the dilemma he's put himself in, it's got to look right. It really has to look right. And the movie, the movie just hits at every beat visually. And, uh, and uh, the same thing with a guy running from running from uh, his pursuers in 39 steps and, and doing it uh, through the streets and through the different settings he has that I love those train scenes that all that was done so brilliantly. You, you could see an early Hitchcock and his vision come together and he did it through the sound. He did it through the editing and he certainly did it through the set design. So uh, those, those are my five. Agreed with all that. All these movies look incredibly good on uh, an aesthetic level. I was particularly impressed by the Informer's design of the small town they were in. Mm. Like, it looked appropriately gritty and beaten down by usage. Yeah, claustrophobic almost. Yes, yeah. claustrophobic. So, my nominees are Bride of Frankenstein, Les Miserables, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Mutiny on the Bounty, and Top Hat. With Bride of Frankenstein, again, like you said, the miniatures, the towers, like, the trees, and, like, the vast hills, it all looks like the quintessential horror movie from this era, especially from Universal. And again, you can see how this would influence so many movies in the years to come. And then Les Miserables just looks perfect for the sort of prestige historical biopic. And then A Midsummer Night's Dream. I just, it understands what kind of Shakespeare adaptation it's, it is. And all the sets look so pretty. And... There's something just truly nutty about everything going on, and that's definitely reflected in the production design. And then Mutiny on the Bounty, like you said, the ships look legit. Like, 
this looks like a big budget epic adventure and you want to get wrapped up in it and it makes you want to like be a spectator in this adventure and then top hats it just look, look it looks so elegant and classy and fun like you're having fun while you're watching these movies Yeah, yeah, well said. Well said across the board. So next is best song. Best song. Okay, so how I did this, because the, the Academy had three nominees that year. And uh, I, so I basically, I added two. So I kept the, I kept the three that they, that they put up and I added two. So uh, the, the three nominees are Cheek to Cheek from Top Hat. Lovely to Look At from Roberta, Lullaby of Broadway from Gold Diggers of 1935. Those were the existing nominees. And I added two Arthur Freed songs from a Broadway Melody 1936, Broadway Rhythm, and I've Got a Feeling You're Fooling were what I added to that one. So those are my five. Uh, I actually... You know, I could not believe I had to sit down and watch another Broadway melody. Uh, as it stands, Broadway melody 1929 is probably my least favorite Best Picture winner. Uh, there's a couple in there that that contend with it, but that's that's down there for me. And I know you guys you you guys did that year already, and it's it's easily probably the worst Oscar year, as far as all the movies of that year. Uh, I think you guys buried that pretty good in 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 that one. Um, so I sat down and watched a Broadway melody of 1936, and I got to be honest, I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, I'd, I was expecting the worst. I mean, I didn't think it was anything that, that's going to garner a ton of awards or anything like that, but it, it had a, it had a sound enough story and the music was, the music was good. And it had the big, uh, gotta dance, gotta dance that you'd hear later on in, in, um, singing in the rain. So I, I knew that singing in the rain pulled from the Broadway melody 29 with the, with the Broadway melody song, but I didn't know that the gotta dance was from a later Broadway melody. So I learned a little bit there and that's what Broadway rhythm is that song there. So that, that got a nominee for me there. Uh, the, I got a feeling you're fooling from the same movie, which is just super catchy, uh, just an earworm of a song. So that I had to include that. Um, you know, I, I don't really get lovely to look at or lullaby Broadway. I, I, you know, I listened to them a few times today and, uh, I just don't really get it. Cheek to cheek, you know, it, it, it best picture cast. We before every year we do a movie, we we briefly mentioned the um, the president who was the president at the time, the Major League Baseball World Series winner, and the number one song of the year. And when we did Beauty and the Bounty, the number one song of the year was Cheek to Cheek by Fred Astaire. So not only was it in this movie, uh, Top Hat, which has stood the test of time, it also garnered uh, a uh, a top a top Billboard track of the year. So. Uh, that's that was an easy to pass that along and include that. So, those are my five. Those are all good choices. So, my nominees are "Alone" from *A Night at the Opera*, "Broadway Rhythm" from *Broadway Melody of 1936*, "Cheek to Cheek" from *Top Hats*, "Lullaby of Broadway* from *The Gold Diggers of 1935 and lovely to look at from Roberta. Um, I especially like Alone and Cheek to Cheek. I think those stand out the most from my nominees. 
As for the other three, they are what they are. I don't really pay that much attention to song analysis, so I can't really offer specific feedback on that front, but I think they're worthy inclusions and they're fine enough. Yeah, I I gotta say, like, musical... Music in general in the 1930s is kind of very odd. You know, it's it's a it's a decade where the music industry hasn't really figured itself out. You have mostly show tunesy type songs that that make it in there that you know later kind of form in as crooner crooner songs. So it's kind of a confused decade musically. You don't the 50s is when it really starts kicking in with with uh, real strong popular music. So you can kind of see that in some of these early song categories for sure. And this is even pre Disney, so. As far as the, the major animated films. So next is best original score. Original score. I had Captain Blood, Mutiny on the Bounty, The Informer, 39 Steps, and Top Hat. So a lot of it's going to, I'm going to be repeating myself a little bit here with, with The Informer and 39 Steps just because I was, just and and it's it's kind of it's funny you have the former and the 39 steps on one side of the of the field and then you have top hat on the other where they're both doing the same thing but completely opposite where 39 steps and the informer is using that dark shadowy dolgy uh creepy vibe and that shines through in the set direction in the cinematography in the film editing in the music in the sound and and in the score so Top Hat gives you the opposite. They make everything bright, uh, shiny, a spectacle without being cheesy or over the top with it. it, it there's a refinement to it and there's a class to it. Uh, so I, I thought that the, the scores were no different with any of those three movies. Uh, the, the intensity of the chase of 39 Steps and then uh, The Informer. Uh, the Informer, which I think won the Oscar that year. Um, there, I gotta be honest, there were some times where it was a little much for me, the score, cause the score does not really relent in that movie. And there's times where it kind of should have taken a little bit of a step back, I thought, but, uh, it was certainly a, as a whole, I think worthy of a, a nomination. Mutant the Bounty, uh, again, uh, just part of the presentation of the whole thing, keeping that adventure vibe around being out at sea. The music did a nice job of that being off to the Island and conveying those different settings through. Uh, through music was was great and captain blood just uh, i think that was the write-in that year if i'm not mistaken and i can see why people wrote it in and if you if you listen to the main theme of it you can hear the back to the future theme in there i think that alan silvestri might have been listening to captain blood when he was composing the uh it's it's in there it's in there a little bit so uh that stood out to me so those those are my five yeah, did, I mean, you can definitely see, like, composers of, like, action and adventure movies from the 1980s, like, looking back to past decades. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark is built upon that premise. Yeah. It is a throwback to those serials from the 1930s. And then Back to the Future, again, sort of a throwback in many aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I love that. I mean, you want that. Yeah. You want you want you know, eighties eighties directors and eighties composers looking back to movies from the thirties and then so on and into the twenty twenties and 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 paying paying homage in that way. So, yeah, absolutely. 
So my nominees are Bride of Frankenstein, Captain Blood, The Informer, Mutiny on the Bounty, and The 39 Steps. I think Bride of Frankenstein just pertains that eeriness and the atmospheric vibe through the music. You can really see Franz Waxman cutting his teeth here. And then, like you said, this would, Eric Wolf gained colon gold with scores like Captain Blood and Adventures of Robin Hood and Seahawk. He would influence so many future composers with his approach to composing. Like, he knew what he was doing. He had the sort of romanticism nailed down to a T in his compositions. And then the informer is so foreboding. The main theme fits the movie so well. And then same with Mutiny on the Bounty. Robert Stossart understands what he's doing. The epic adventure. Like, it's there. And it works. And then the 39 steps. It is... A really effective score that doesn't draw too much attention to itself, but instead just complements everything going on around it. Yeah, uh, well said. You know, you might have sold me on the Bride of Frankenstein there. I might have missed on that. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, that's there's there's and there's there's an extra element to the genre there. There there it kind of. It kind of steps out of the horror genre and, and takes takes the next step to, to what it needs to be there. I, I that's that's pretty well said. I, I agree with you there. Nice to see I could convert you on that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm looking at because Top Hat was my was like just in there and now I'm like, you know, I, I think I think there might be more artistry there for Bride of Frankenstein. That's that's a good call. So Next is Best Adaptation. Best Adaptation. So I went with Alice Adams, Bride of Frankenstein, Captain Blood, The Informer, and Mutiny on the Bounty. So there's obviously a lot you'll notice omitted here from because this is a year where, where there were heavy text adaptations put in this best picture list. And I guess I'll talk about that a little more when we get to the, to the best picture category, but I, I went, I made a choice here with this whole list of, of nominees to, to step away from, from some of those adaptations. So I went with, with, with these ones here, uh, Alice Adams. I mean, it, it is a pretty straightforward script, but it works. It works within what the movie's trying to do. It, it's, it's helped by, uh, it's helped by quality acting and, and superb directing. But it really, to me, it's it's a script that took what isn't necessarily the the greatest property in the world, and he put it it put it into something that becomes a very effective film, uh, Bride of Frankenstein. So you know, I I guess that could probably that's I went off of modern Academy rules where like the sequel has to be an adaptation, even though it's original. Like, I think like Borat Two was an adaptation, even though it's a totally original script. It's just because it's based on previous characters. So uh, I, I, how could I not put Bride of Frankenstein there for me? You have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and 
and they put this script together and ha to have it not be a cheesy, cheap sequel is a major achievement for me here with this. And um, of course the production and the production quality of the movie led into that, but I thought the script was right there. I thought there were, there were a lot of, uh, of though the themes were overt, they're definitely not hidden in any sense. They're right there for you. They weren't cheap. And I thought, thought, thought it was earned. So uh, I, I thought the script did a nice job there with that. Uh, Captain Blood, you know, to take an adventure novel, put it in screen, make it be super entertaining 80 years later, 90 years later. That's, that's an accomplishment for me. Uh, the Informer, again, just was really wrapped up in, in what they were doing here in, in, that, in that movie. And the text really came through to the screen, uh, the struggles of the characters and the interactions of, of the characters was just, you, you were right there with them. Uh, and then Mutiny on the Bounty, which is basically like an assembly of three different properties or not, th it's one property, but three different novels to kind of compact into one and to, to really hammer home the conflict between those three main characters and the different places that they exist in, in uh, the concepts of what's justice, what is fair, what is uh, right, you know, what, what's the duty, of, uh, the duty of a man who is in the Navy? What is the duty of a man who is himself? And, uh, and how do you apply that? I, I thought the script really hammered that down. Again, elevated by great acting. But yeah, so those, those are my five. Yeah, I agree with all that. So my nominees are Alice Adams, David Copperfield, the Informer, Mutiny on the Bounty, and 39 Steps. I would say, so Alice Adams understands like the best elements of the novel and adapts them to the big screen in an effective manner. Same with David Copperfield. It manages to maintain all the weirdness of the original text. And then the Informer. It's just a perfect consummate adaptation of a novel. Like. It is. It is tight. It is economical. And it just works. And then Mutiny on the Bounty. Again. It's just. Great almost poetic. Adaptation of this adventure novel and I like all the steps they took aside from maybe some of the like midsection of the film and then the 39 steps is again just a great adaptation into a tight thriller and I like that Yeah, all all well said and in agreement over here. We were pretty pretty much on on the same page there with that one. So next is best original story, which was basically best original screenplay in nineteen thirty five. Yes, and this was by far the hardest category to to assemble here. I had a I had a. This gave me a lot of agita here, this, this, uh, this category. I had a hard time picking exactly 
what I wanted to do. And even after picking it, I'm still not certain that necessarily all of these are definitely original screenplays. So I did it the best I could based on the research I, I could do. So feel free to jump at me if one of these is definitely adapted or, uh, or where it goes from there. Because it is confusing because I think even one of the, the nominees that the Oscars picked, or the Academy picked that year was out of a novel. So it's kind of was, it was confusing to me. So I just kind of, if the, if the guy who did the original story was credited, I put it, I put him in there. I think the following year, like the same movie wins both adapted and original or something. And then they change things. So I, it, 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 it's a little bit of a confusing category this year. So I did the best I could with it. Please it, it, feel free to scream and yell at your devices out there. If you, if you're frustrated with these choices, I, 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 I will take it. I'll take it on the chin. Okay. So I went with the Broadway melody, 1936. I went with dangerous. I went with G men. What with night at the opera, and I went with the man who knew too much. So I know that the night of the opera was based on a previous story, but was to me, it's about the screenplay and about the dialogue of the Marx Brothers and the witty comedy and how much it influences everything we see today from the from Woody Allen movies and and moving that on to like Seinfeld and to uh, curb enthusiasm. Uh, it, it just is just, this is the earliest roots of it. Uh, whether you want to go into the stand-up of, of Don Rickles or Billy Crystal, you can really see all the marks, how influential the Marx Brothers were. Uh, I know you guys have already talked about Duck Soup, I think, and uh, probably uh, Horse Feathers too. So it, it, you could, this was my chance to kind of pay homage to the Marx Brothers here with, with this movie. So uh, I, I included them there with that. Um, G-Men was the write-in that year. So I uh, tip my cap to them on that. Um, and not, um, sorry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is the title of a novel, but was the, the story is different than the title they use. So it's kind of pieced together from a bunch of different things. So I kind of tip my cap to, to uh, its originality, quote unquote, and, and wanted to include it here. It was one of two Hitchcock movies that were eligible this year. Wasn't my favorite movie in the world. I thought that a lot of the things that 39 Steps did great, the man who knew too much kind of missed on. And it showed his uh, his youth in, in directing here. And the early stages came out in that one a little bit. But I thought the story was, was super interesting and, and cool there. So, uh, And then I went with Broadway Melody 1936. It was a nominee. I, again... I had such low expectations. The script kind of elevated it. And if I compare it to 29, that, that difference was, was noticeable there to me. So I, I kind of gave it a tip of the cap by keeping it in there. And then Dangerous was a true original screenplay where the screenwriter did it all himself. And I really liked the witty dialogue here in, in, in this movie between uh, French Tone and uh, Betty Davis, and it just kept me the whole way. And I understand that it's not the greatest movie. In many ways, it's 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 a um, it's an early ancestor of the soap opera. But I it it got me a little bit with this one, so I, I wanted to keep it in there with that. So I can see all your points. So uh, my criteria for uh, best original screenplay is I know there's some confusion, like. Up until 1956, the difference between original screenplay and story, because for some reason the Academy decided we needed a best motion picture story category. Right. So, the way I decide things is if 
the stories are written for the movie and not previously published in another medium. I usually um, include those nominees into the best original screenplay category. So with that said, my nominees are Barbary Coast, The Man Who Knew Too Much, A Night at the Opera, Our Daily Bread, and Top Hat. With Barbary Coast, it's the sort of old-fashioned, almost feel-good melodrama that you can just kick back and watch and just enjoy yourself watching it, and you don't get that too often nowadays. And it is nice to just be able to enjoy having that experience. And then, with the man who knew too much, you can definitely tell this is early Hitchcock, and there's some inexperience going on, but still, you can see how he would become such a master of the genre. Suspense, and mystery, and terror. And then, A Night at the Opera, again, like you said, you can see how the Marx Brothers influenced so many comedians, from Don Rickles to Woody Allen, and Wallace Shawn, and so many others with their use of slapstick and such. And I especially like how it sort of expands their formula into something a bit more cinematic, tying it into the experience of watching an opera and just dining and living the high life that's just so appealing for some reason to me. And then Our Daily Bread technically is a sequel to The Crowd, so I feel like I might be cheating here, but... I think I can make an exception for myself. Absolutely. Uh, so, I think it does a good job at following up the themes that were touched on by the first. And it's just a really well-told story on King Vidor's behalf. And then, with Top Hat, it does everything it needs to do for the sort of lights feel-good musical. It just works. It's not particularly deep. It doesn't need to be. Yeah, I, I feel a little better now. We have some, I, I was afraid we'd have five completely different ones and I'd have my tail between my legs. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy that we, we were simpatico on a few of those. So I, I, uh, that, was my, that was my stressful one coming into this. So I feel a little better now about that. Yeah. So... Next is Best Actress. Best Actress. God, another tough category. A lot of these movies this year or a lot of the top movies are so male-dominated. And uh, I I liked a bunch of female performances in some of them, but they just were very – these weren't allotted a ton of screen time, which is a shame. And uh, while I really did love a lot of these movies I watched this year, I'd have to say if, if there's one overarching theme that you got to look at is that these movies are a little bit too male dominated. I would have liked to see a little more, uh, a little more inclusion there with, with some, some power female performances. Cause they certainly had the talent at their fingertips here. And I'll go through that. Now my five nominees were Claudette Colbert in private worlds, Betty Davis in dangerous Catherine Hepburn in Alice Adams Ginger Rogers in Top Hat and 
and Schumacher in Alice Adams. So I kind of, I thought the two women in Alice Adams were just fantastic. I thought they crushed it. They took very across the line material and really brought it above the line. And uh, I, I thought Ann Schumacher, as who played uh, Alice Adams' mom in that, really was an X factor in that movie. And um, um, in, in later years where she probably would have qualified as a supporting actress, I'm going to look at what the men did over there with, with the Mutiny Bounty guys, and I'm going to copy, follow suit with, with the actresses and give her a nod because I really, really loved her performance in that. Ginger Rogers, I mean, you know, she wasn't nominated by the Academy this year. She'd go on to win uh, in later years. But, I mean, she looks, just looks like a million bucks on screen. She's got so much charisma. She obviously works really well with Fred Astaire. And while it may, like nuts and bolts, X's and O's, not be the best place you'd go for an Academy nomination, I really liked it. I, I thought she was. I thought she was charming and and really popped on screen. So I, I, I was all all very excited to give her a nominee there. Uh, I, I love Claudette Colbert getting a nom- nomination the year after her historic win uh, in, in in happened one night. So uh, I'm I'm pumped that she w- that she got the nod the following year there. So I wasn't going to change that with uh, her performance in Private Worlds. And then we go to the top two dogs here with with Betty Davis and Catherine Hepburn. And boy, two awesome performances, two great actresses doing the exact opposite thing. You have, you have Catherine Hepburn and Alice Adams with that controlled, knowing what she's going to do every step of the way with right here material. There's nothing in there that's going to, that's going to spike the levels or pop the screen. It's a, it's a super controlled performance and she really brings you into the text and into the script and into the character whereas the Betty Davis performance is dialed up to 11 she's giving you everything she's got she's using every club on the golf course she's just she is throwing everything he can at you to really sell this character and it could so easily be over the top in the worst kind of ways when in reality it's over the top in the best kind of ways in my opinion so uh, I, I loved both of those performances and was uh, happy to, to watch them for this because these are they're probably two movies I otherwise never would have seen had I not done this. So I'm, I'm just happy happy to, to, to experience those. I agree with all of that. So my nominees are Katherine Hepburn for Alice Adams. Greta Garbo for Anna Karenina, Karen Morley for Our Daily Bread, Merle Oberon for The Scarlet Pimpernel, and Ginger Rogers for Top Hats. I think, well, Catherine Hepburn and Alice Adams speaks for herself. This is one of her best performances, and she's honestly just heartbreaking throughout. There's something so honest and raw about her performance where she has to do a lot of morally questionable things, not because she wants to, but because the society around her that judges her for lower class 
uh, presence dictates that she does these things just to appear more high class, high society. And then there's Greta Garbo and Anna Karenina, who's just captivating as usual. And then Karen Morley for Our Daily Bread does justice to the Mary Sims character and does justice to Eleanor Boardman's characterization. And then Merle Oberon for the Scarlet Pimpernel makes a great romantic interest. And then Ginger Rogers, like you said, she's just a perfect movie star, has so much charisma, just a great presence. She works so well with Fred Astaire. She's just amazing in every sense. This is everything a movie star performer should be. Couldn't agree more. So next is Best Actor. Best Actor. So this one is going to be the least interesting of mine because I, uh, I, I did the chalk picks here. I uh, stuck with the Academy on this one. My nominees are Clark Gable, Mutant in the Bounty. Charles Lawton, Mutiny on the Bounty. Franchot Tone, Mutiny on the Bounty. Victor McLaughlin, The Informer. And Paul Mooney in Black Fury. So the four nominees the Academy picked were the three gentlemen from Mutiny on the Bounty and Victor McLaughlin and The Informer. Um, uh, Paul Mooney was the write-in, which famously, or supposedly, or as lore will have it, finished in second. Now, we've had much debate over this at Best Picture Cast, and... On film Twitter, I've argued with plenty of people about this too, about the art of splitting the vote. And people like to think, oh, they didn't split the vote. They didn't split the vote because Paul Mooney finished in second. To me, if you had three nominees there, because this, is, I believe, is the only lead acting movie to have three, to have three in the same. Uh, if you have three, you have the people who are going to go Gable. You have the people who are going to go Franchotone. You have the people that are going to go Lawton. And then there's the people that just don't want to pick. So they're going to probably write someone in. And if they didn't love, if they didn't love McLaughlin's performance in the informer, they're going to just write someone. in. I think that's how a write-in almost won this year because of those three. I think if you pull one of those two out, I think a mutant, the bounty might win, but I guess that's a discussion for another time. As far as their performances go, as you can see, I agree with the choices here. I think the three leads in, in Muting the Bounty just were just iconic across the board there. It's all time acting. And one of the biggest things I look at here is, and, and you've brought it up a few times here, Gabe, is the Muting the Bounty as a big undertaking is an adventure film. It's, a, it's an MGM, Hollywood, we're gonna go big, we're gonna fill the theaters, we're gonna make people come see our movie. But what these actors do, particularly Charles Lawton, is he brings the stage onto the ship. And he is stage acting in this massive blockbuster, which is just like, it's so impressive to watch. And uh, I think he's one of the greatest actors of, of, of our time. I think Clark Gable is one of the best movie stars of our time. And I think this is quietly one of his better performances that gets a little bit overlooked because he's what he does playing off of Lawton in this is just is it's so incredible to watch because you have the the stage icon and you have the Hollywood film icon and 
watching them interact with each other. And I know there's a lot of ton of off the off the film stories about the two of them and how they got along. But it, it just it, it's I'm so happy this movie was made and that these guys got to do all this on screen because it's just it's a joy to watch. Uh, I, I it's a movie I would put on right after I, I shut this off because of the actors and the job they do. And I have to say, Franchot Tone, he is the the unsung hero of this of this movie, because what, as I said, when you have two icons, the film icon and the stage icon to be that third guy, that third wheel is such a difficult task. And the Academy recognized what he did. And, and this, this performance essentially created the supporting actor category, which is such a big part of the Oscars today. So I had to keep those three in there. Um, I, I, I went on a long time about, about me and the bounty. I have to talk about Victor McLaughlin's performance in the informer, which is so painful and, and heart wrenching and, and just awesome. It's, it's a great performance that I don't want to take anything away from because you're right there with him and, and you believe, you believe the character. And so many times when you see these, these actors playing drunkards, it, they just look like they're acting, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to cast any, um, I don't want to cast any Gary Oldman shade here, but if you look at Mank to me, like so many times that I was watching Mank, I just, it looked like he was an actor acting drunk. I, I, I thought that, I thought that, that McLaughlin's performance was just, it, it was just so authentic. And I, I really, again, loved, loved watching that film. And Paul Moody, uh, you got a tip, you megastar this time here and, and earned that right in there. And I think might've almost won, but uh, yeah. So that's, so I, I kind of went chalk with, with that category. Yeah, the thing with Paul Muni is that so many times I can just clearly see him acting and doing these intentional affectations, and it kind of doesn't really jar with the movie he's in. And this performance kind of disappointed me in that regard, his performance in Black Fury. But with that said, my nominees... I basically have the same four, except I also have Fred Astaire. So, if I'm going to list them, I have the three men from Mutiny on the Bounty, Victor McLaughlin for the, Victor McLaughlin for the Informer, and Fred Astaire for Top Hat. Fred Astaire, again, like Ginger Rogers, perfect movie star, just doing what they do best. Dancing, singing, doing a lot of great comedic stuff. It's just incredible and so enjoyable to watch and then like you said with Gable and Lawton it is the match off between the stage icon and the Hollywood icon and to see that di dichotomy if I'm pronouncing that correctly mm -hmm. just playing it. out in such a dramatic fashion it is just captivating and then, like you said with Franchot Tone, he is almost like the... He almost has to play like a mediator in a certain regard. A certain balance between those two extreme ends presented by Gable and Lawton. And, at the end, and by the end of the movie, he rises to the top as our main underdog. I do think he's co-lead. But I can see your point with how this 
had some sort of influence in green and supporting actor category, even though that's not actually true. The truth is that we'll get into more of this later, but short story for now. The Academy was losing the trust of the actors, and so to rectify that, they created a supporting actor category. Oh, that's, cool. just a story, that's just a short story for now. Yeah, but okay, nice. I do think that by today's campaigning standards, Grand Show Tone would absolutely be, uh, absolutely be placed in supporting. And it would give, and, film, it would give film, film Twitter something to scream and yell about, though. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And probably Lawton as well, maybe. Because we're not having any more, like, co-leads nominated mm. anymore. But besides that, they're all fantastic. And then Victor McLaughlin, there is actual depth and humanity and agony and melancholy, and melancholy behind this big hulking brute who can't handle his drinking problem and is just... And... He just self-destructs in slow motion. And it's almost hard to watch, but it's so captivating. So yeah, all of them great performances. Yeah, and so yeah, so you went a stare with that fifth spot. And I, I was debating on that fifth one. I kind of chickened out. Uh, I like a stare in that choice. That's, that's a good choice. Uh, I was looking at Robert Dunant in, in 39 Steps. Because I do really like him. I do like him in that in that role and he really like looks the part on screen and um he he just had a couple of looney tunesy moments there that i i i backed off on uh with it but he reminded me a lot of um of andrew garfield believe it or not in in that performance he just kind of they, they looked somewhat similar there but uh so i, I chickened out a little bit i kind of wish I, I went that route but i just went safe and and went with the academy there and their write-ins and, and went with movie but uh, I don't disagree with anything you said there. I think a stare is a fine choice. Yeah. Um, as for Donat, he doesn't really get talked a whole lot about these days outside of like film circles, but I do think he was somewhat underappreciated, at least from the performances I have seen. Like, he just seemed like such a dependable presence. And yeah, I definitely I don't want anything from him yeah i agree he kind of got market corrected by sir, sir lawrence olivier i think you know so they we got he got washed out of the way there with that but i i really liked his performance in it I, I thought it was good yeah so next up is best director best director and this is my favorite category they did uh, other than cinematography i mentioned before i went i went on a little bit about that but i'm super happy with the five gentlemen i have here representing 1935 for best director and it's going to start with john ford for the informer alfred hitchcock for 39 steps frank lloyd for mutiny on the bounty george stevens for alice adams and michael curtis for captain blood so i mean i got an i got an all-star team here with these five i mean we have of those of those five three of them have won multiple best directing Oscars. Uh, the other one is Alfred Hitchcock and the other one directed Casablanca. So I, I think I feel pretty good about, about these five. The Casablanca, of course, is directed by 
uh, Michael Curtis, uh, who directed Captain Blood. He also uh, directed Adventures of Robin Hood, which is a a, um, a low key favorite of mine. And uh, I I like I like what he did with Captain Blood. He, he got the write in from the Academy, and I anytime I saw that in this, I kind of always gave that a little extra consideration because his peers noticed him as a significant omission for them to go out of the way and put him in there. And at Best Picture Guys, we're always ragging on the Academy for not having foresight with their nominations and with their selections and kind of just always go picking the best of what's already been. And uh, I think this is an example of them having a little foresight in his skill and, and knowing that he would, that he had great things coming in the future and, and that that would come to fruition with Casablanca. So I'm happy to include him here with these other four absolute legends of film uh george stevens and alice adams i mean i i just think that this movie could be so forgettable and so just so run-of-the-mill stage adaptation it's just another play on screen and he 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 just directs he directs the hell out of it he 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 goes in there and says i'm going to make this I'm going to take these lemons and I'm going to make some lemonade. And, and I just think it's a wonderfully directed movie and is just was surprisingly watchable for me. And I think that a lot of that leans on the directing because it didn't have a lot of the technical bells and whistles that some of the other movies that we talked about earlier, whether it was 39 Steps or The, Infor or the Informer or uh, Bride of Frankenstein. It really kind of was just playing in the sandbox that it had. And he, he took that and, and made the most out of it. I, I really, really uh, am, am usually inclined to him as a director. I think he's a wonderful, wonderful director. So happy to have him in here. Frank Lloyd, Mutant and the Bounty. I think it goes it goes without saying here to, for him to, pardon the pun, captain that ship. Uh, he, he did a hell of a job there. And for all the grief that uh, Cavalcade gets, uh, because Cavalcade is obviously, I think, one of the more loathed Best Picture winners also directed by by Frank Lloyd, I think it was his, that was his second Oscar win in that category. I think he took all everything that went wrong with Cavalcade, he perfected for this movie. The big vision, the big idea, the lapse of time, it, it all came together through this production, and I gotta I gotta credit Lloyd for that. Alfred Hitchcock, what can I say? I mean, this is uh, you know one of the greatest directors that we've ever known. This is an early season quote unquote if he's a sports analogy for him this is him as as a as a youthful director and it's an omission in my mind that he didn't get recognized and this movie didn't get recognized at the oscars so i'm happy to put him in here and uh john ford is the babe ruth of this category you know what else can you say i mean he's he leads every director of all time and in, in best director wins the informers are wonderfully directed movie I don't think it's the best movie of his wins, but I think it's it's a it's a real good movie, and and he did a wonderful job directing it, and it's you know, it's certainly worth inclusion. So very happy with those five nominees. Agreed with all that. Uh, George Stevens was a last minute omission for me, personally. Like, he did a great job directing Alice Adams, but I ultimately settled on number five. So my nominees are George Stevens for the... No, sorry. My nominees are John Ford for The Informer, Frank Lloyd for Mutiny on the Bounty, Sam Wood for A Night at the Opera, 
Alfred Hitchcock for The 39 Steps, and Mark Sandrick for Top Hats. I personally find Mark Sandrick pretty underrated from what I've seen from him. Like he understand he understood what to do with whatever material he had. And he just does a great job like knitting together all these musical sequences and these dance sequences and showing Rogers and Astaire at their most glamorous. And then Alfred Hitchcock, this is an early movie for him, and even with that, he understands his craft so well and how to keep us on the edge of our seats. And then Sam Wood for A Night at the Opera. I think Sam Wood was at his best when he was directing comedies because he didn't really seem to have much of an identity outside of that. But his direction works here, and I think merits the nomination. And he handles all the gags so well, as well as the more cinematic elements. And then Frank Lloyd, like you said, he corrected everything that was wrong with Cavalcade and perfected it here. Like, this is sheer entertainment value. And he understands that. And then John Ford. It's John Ford, what can you say about him? But besides that, it is just an economic little exercise and how to use a minimal setting. And it might be heavy-handed in its religious allegories, but that doesn't really take away from the sheer visceral experience that he brings to the movie. Yeah, good list, man. I, I had um, Wood I, I had as a last-minute omission, too. I put Michael Curtis or Captain Blood in there at the last second. Um, uh, it was a tough call. Uh, I ultimately, uh, I ultimately went with Curtis, but uh, yeah, I like I like that list too. Nice. So now on to the big one: best picture or outstanding production, as they call it, in 1935. Best outstanding production. Best outstanding production. Here we go. And uh, so this, there were 12 this year, which is way too many. And uh, we cut it down to 10 uh, as per your instructions. And I wanted to almost disobey those instructions and even go to eight just to make a point. I didn't. I played by the rules. I, I have 10. But I, I see on film Twitter today, every time the, the Oscars comes around, there's this contingent, and it seems like a pretty large contingent, that like gets mad at the Academy for not using all of the nomination slots that it has. And I, it always frustrates me because to me, it's like, I like a nice short list. If you, if there's only eight that deserve it, go with eight. Don't just stick two in there so that 10 years from now we can go, why was that movie nominated for best picture? You know, and, and this year is like, to me is a perfect example of it. You have a lot of movies here that just shouldn't have been recognized. And it, it, you could easily have cut this to eight and had no problem. I, I thought there were, there were a lot of, vapid adaptations here of of classic material that just i'm sure at the time there was some there was an impressive achievement to it so i kind of went out of my way to omit that from the process here so i'm sure like when people when people have have heard my entire list of of all these nominees they're saying well well why didn't you put in this why didn't you put in that that i made a conscious decision to say you know these adaptations 
with the exception of one that I'm going to have on here. I just, I'm moving away from them because the, a statement needs to be made with this year. And, and that's what I'm doing. So here we go. Here are my 10. Uh, I went with 39 Steps, Alice Adams, Bride of Frankenstein, Captain Blood, Dangerous, The Informer, Les Mis, Les Miserables, Mutiny on the Bounty, A Night at the Opera, and Top Hat. So I feel pretty good about the list. I'll just go with a quick blurb about each of them. 39 Steps, we said plenty about. I think it's a crime that it was not included in the nominees this year. Uh, Alice Adams was included, and I think it's really elevated by some great acting and some uh, Hall of Fame directing. Bride of, Bride of Frankenstein, again, another crime that it's not in here. It's uh, one of the classic movies of its genre. It is a movie that's aged wonderfully. Um, really loved the hell out of it this week watching it. Should be in this list. It's a movie everyone should watch. Captain Blood, of the time and of the time in all the right ways. Love the big production in there. Had to include it. Dangerous was kind of like my dangerous pick here because I understand why anyone would not want it in this mix. It, it is, it's a wacky movie. It makes some real interesting choices. But we talked about Franchot Tone in Mutiny and the Bounty. He's in this one too, and he just crushes it in this as the male lead. And, and him playing off of Betty Davis, I, I, I really just, I, I thought the script was killer. I thought the acting was strong. I, I wanted to put it in this mix. The Informer, I mean, again, everything we said, it's, it's probably like one of those classic movies that maybe many have not seen uh, of, of John Ford's. It's because I don't think of his, it's, it's the one that's uh, the first place you go when you think of John Ford, but certainly belongs in here. I went with Les Miserables. That, that would be that classic adaptation that I included here. It's just, it's just kind of really made really, really well. So uh, while, I, while I was the miserable watching it, because it was incredibly like, painful to experience to, to, to go through, um, you know, maybe that's a me problem, but I can't deny the filmmaking that was in there and, and, and what that would become. And I think whoever decided to put music to it is, is a genius because that movie needs a song or two in the worst way. And so, so good, good for the, the Broadway production there. Mutant and the Bounty, I think everything that, that is said can be said. It's 1,000% needs to be in this list of Best Picture nominees. A Night at the Opera, uh, maybe a hot take as one of the best, the best Marx Brothers movie. I mean, it's that duck soup. I don't know. I really liked it. I, loved, I just love the inclusion of everything that was going on in cinema at the time with the Broadway melodies of the world and the Top Hats and the Ginger Rogers and the Fred Astaire's of the world to take that setting and to do this kind of wise guy comedy on top of it and really make it work and make it stand the test of time. Easy to put that in there. And then Top Hat is the flip side of that where they kind of took everything that was going on and put it in just a great vessel that, that, that made it to us here in 2021. So that is my list of Best Picture nominees for the year 1935. I would agree with all that. Like, it is like an, essentially a great encapsulation of everything going on in 1935 cinematically. So my nominees are Alice Adams, Bride of Frankenstein, David Copperfield, The Informer, Les Miserables, Mutiny on the Bounty, 
A Night at the Opera, Our Daily Bread, The 39 Steps, and Top Hat. With the sort of literary adaptations, they're all such good representations of the novels that they are adapting. And even if they're not, they know how to make just satisfying movie experiences. And then A Night at the Opera. Again, like I said, it just feels even more cinematic than some of the previous Marx Brothers adaptation, not Marx Brothers, uh, movies. And then Our Daily Bread is just another incredibly well-told autoristic drama from King Vidor. And then Top Hats, like I said, is just the perfect Rogers and Hysteria musical, the most iconic for a reason. Really, I've said a lot about all these movies, but I do think they're a good representation of this year overall. Yeah, well said. Our Daily Bread was one of the ones that, that did not come across my desk this week, so that's one I got to check out. Um, it's not going to be tomorrow, I promise you, because I'm up to my ears in 1935 after these couple, these couple weeks. But I, I, this is a good year. This is a good list of movies. I think we were only different on two. Uh, I think Our Daily Bread and David Copperfield were the two that you had, and then I had... Um, I had Dangerous and maybe, did you have Captain Blood in there? No. Okay, so those are the two. So I had Dangerous, Captain Blood, you had Copperfield, and um, our, our Daily Bread. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it's a pretty good list of movies. I would agree. On your end as well. So, now it's time to announce our winners. Starting back at editing and ending with picture. All right, let's do it. Film editing. Here we go. Uh, I went with the 39 steps. I, I think to, to effectively put together chase scenes like that in, in 1935 on the budget they were on, I mean, I just thought it was brilliant. So to, to, kudos to, to Alfred Hitchcock for putting that one together. It's a, that was an easy choice for me. Good choice. My winner is Mutiny on the Bounty. My runner-up. Margaret Booth had such a difficult task of cutting from ship to ship and just dealing with all the behind-the-scenes drama that I have no doubt was there. Like, you mentioned all the lost footage. She had to, like, deal with all that reshot footage and everything in between. And that it comes together so well is just a commendable achievement. And for that, I give her the award. Yeah, hard so time. Yeah. So next is Best Cinematography. Cinematography, I'll be able to cop uh, to, to hop piggyback on what you just said. I went with Muting and the Bounty here. Um, I, I thought those, those ship scenes were just the work of, of a master. And we'd see that with Casablanca and All Quiet on the Western Front, Maltese Falcon and Frankenstein. And it was uh, Arthur Edison gets that Oscar for sure. If you haven't seen any of his work, please go check it out. The guy's just a master of his trade. You're doing the bounty for best cinematography. Great. My winner is The 39 Steps. 
I think Bernard Knowles just does a lot of innovative work. Just the sort of material he's given to work with and makes it look as great as he possibly could. Yeah, well said. We're on the same page of that. It looks like we just kind of flip-flopped the two of those, which is, uh, but I, I think both, both great choices in both spots. Yeah. So next is best art direction. Art direction, I went with The Bride of Frankenstein. Everything we said about the miniatures, the uh, all the different settings. Uh, w one thing that we, we we didn't bring up before that I just want to call attention to the scene with the with the blind man and Frankenstein in that cottage, just an all time scene. And as great as the makeup and the acting, all that is, it, I think just the way that cottage looks, there's something about it that just that just encapsulates those scenes in your brain and, and makes it and makes it an all-time scene. So I went I went uh, art art direction Bride of Frankenstein. And I think I have the same winner. Like there's so much innovation going on here and it is just a technical marvel to look at and knowing how it would influence so many other future horror movies to come. I just had to give this award as well. Yeah. It was between this and Lickness Rock for me, but ultimately I had to go with this. And those those machines too, making those machines look like not cheesy and and, and something that, that's viable in a, in a 2021 viewing. Really, really good stuff in that, in that film. Yeah, that too, definitely. Next is best sound recording. Sound recording, I'm staying on the same path here. I went with Bride of Frankenstein, which I believe was its only actual nomination. It didn't win the category. I'm giving it the win. Everything we discussed before. I mean, the movie just the movie just sounds like a crisp, effective horror movie that's more than just a horror movie. It's a film. And it's a great film, and the sound is a major, major part of it. So that was my choice for sound recording. Right, Frank. My winner was actually Mutiny on the Bounty. As great as Bride of Frankenstein sound recording is, and I definitely agree with it being a winner. I thought I just had to go with Mutiny on the Bounty. That was the one that impressed me the most for my list of nominees. Just the way the action scene sounded. It's just immaculate. I'm not going to argue with any awards you give me on the bounty <laughs> tonight, Gabe. So uh, yeah. you know, it's a crime that it only got it only got the one back in 1936. But uh, I, I can always I'll, I'll have a smile on my face every every statue you send its way. And it's strange that Douglas Shearer won for Naughty Marietta and not Mutiny on the Bounty. Yeah, I mean maybe yeah I I can't explain it, but yeah. They made some odd choices back then. Indeed. And even now. Oh, yeah, that, that stayed consistent, actually. So next is Best Song. Best Song. This was, for me, just personally the easiest one of the evening. Uh, I went with Cheek to Cheek from Top Hat. 
it is just a song that's last stood the test of time. It was the number one song of 1945. Uh, you have Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett covering it here in modern times, and they do a real, a real up tempo, cool, jazzy version of it. You've had Sinatra cover it. It's it is an all it's an all time song. I mean, what can you say? And uh, I I think it's it's cool to see movies. It's cool to see songs from movies of that time survive that time because to me some of the other nominees did not. So yes, so I went cheek to cheek from Top Hat. And I went the same, cheek to cheek from Top Hat. Irving Berlin is a master of what he does. And the song has lived on and stood the test of time in ways that so many others haven't. Yeah, it's, it's a huge miss, huge miss not giving it the, the Oscar here. But I think that's kind of a category of huge misses. I feel like the Academy is the, it's the one they have the least grasp of. And, and they're made to look the worst because it's tough to predict what song people are going to be listening to decades later. But uh, it, this is, this is a, a regrettable a regrettable one not giving it the award. Yeah. So... Next is best original score. Original score. So I went. I had to. Uh, I had to tip my cap to those Back to the Future vibes that we had going on. I went with Captain Blood here for best score. Uh, I thought it had, out of all of the movies, it had the one hook to the score that I that after watching the movie, I went back and had and remembered in my head. Well, while some of the others created good ambiance and took the back seat to the viewer. This one, it was a big film, it was a big swing, and the score was a big part of it. So, uh, and just the fact that it, that it seemed influential as it, as it moved on, had to give it the score there. Captain Blood. Nice, I can definitely see that. So, my winner is same as the Academy, The Informer. I feel like of all the nominees, this one fits the most with the movie that it is within. And the score is just perfect for the movie. And I just get chills whenever that main theme starts playing again especially within the context of the movie. Hmm. And I just think Max Steiner was so great at everything he did. So next is Best Adaptation. Best Adaptation here, and this was a, was a tricky one that I bounced back and forth with, and I... I mean, just in listening to you talk about your nominees, you actually almost changed my mind, but I'm going to stick with, with my guns here. And I'm going to give this one to Mutiny on the Bounty. I think that beyond the fact that it's a big, quote-unquote, you want to call it a popcorn movie or a, or a big Hollywood MGM production, I think the themes in this movie really ring true in through the three main characters and obviously the wonderful performances, but... The fact that these three entities bring you through this incredible ordeal of a journey and you, you 
every time I watch this movie, I find myself kind of leaning toward a different character every time. Is it is it all about discipline and that's how the ship's going to get to its destination? Is it all about what is best for the people on the ship in the Clark Gable perspective? And then when the people on the ship get where they want to go, then they'll make their own decisions. Or is or is it the franchise tone taking the best of both and trying to manage that and make it work within the context of, of the rules of the military? I, I, it's it's just a really dense script and and condensing it into those from those three novels into into what they made it. I I, I had to give it here, and I think if there's evidence or or something that I would use to back that up, it's just the fact that they tried to remake this so many times and didn't necessarily succeed. But it, it, it's it's just it's such rich material that it merits the attempt to to go after it and try to make it again. And I'm sure in a couple of years they'll probably do it again. But uh, yeah, so I went I went uh, Mutiny on the Bounty for best screenplay adaptation. Nice. So I once again went with the Academy's choice, The Informer. I feel like it's. Like I said about this adaptation being incredibly tight and economical and being to the point. And I'll say it again. It just works as an adaptation of this material and gets across its themes. I think the best of all these nominees. Yeah, and, you almost you almost swayed me there, Gabe. You almost swayed me. I was I was on the I was on I was teetering on the edge there. I I almost I almost toppled over. I stuck to my guns though. Nice. So, next is best original story. Original story here. I went with Dangerous. Uh, this is a uh, a little bit of a, a wild pick. Uh, I, I gave it some credit being that it was a true original screenplay, that the guy who came up with the story did the, did the screenplay. I just loved the dialogue in this in this movie, and it's it predates the soap opera a bit, so I give it some credit there in that sense, where this type of story would then become trivialized through, through daytime television and all that, but I thought they made it work within the time. And the witty dialogue, the, they, they teed up some good lines for some great actors. And uh, it's kind of a wild card Oscar win there, but I went with Dangerous for Best Original Screenplay. Nice. So, for Best Original Screenplay, my choice is A Night at the Opera. For Many of the reasons we've already brought up, like its influence on other comedy movies and comedy acts, like the way it kind of twists the usual Marx Brothers formula in something more wide scoping. And it's just a fun time. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, that's honestly, that's probably the right choice. You know, I got, I got to say, like, I, I can't uh, I can't sit here and and I and maybe even justify my answer over yours there, because it, it really is. I mean, certainly out of the movies that I picked, it's the one that stood the most test of time. Uh, I guess maybe I just lean more on the story and uh, the story end of it and the confusing nature of, of how the awards 
worded, but uh, I I love that choice, Gabe. I think uh, I think you're you're right on it right there. So next is best actress. Best actress, and this was a two horse race for me. I went back and forth. I've gone back and forth over the past couple of days because I really was was impressed with these performances in equal but opposite ways as i said before you have the you have the one the one in betty davis just dialing it up to 11 and giving you every trick she's got in the book to make it work and she elevates material that way and katherine hepburn with just a super controlled performance with material that could become pretty mundane under the wrong hands and I tend to lean toward that controlled performance that elevates the material over the over-the-top one that elevates it because it, I, I think it's like harder to achieve that when you're, when you're super controlled. You know, I, I look at um, Casey Affleck in, in Manchester by the Sea, just a, a really, really gra a great grasp of the character and what he's doing. I had to ultimately go with Catherine Hepburn here. It's just, it's just, it's, it's definition, the actress elevating the material and not just to the point where it's like okay it wasn't a great movie but it was a great performance she, she kind of made it a, a pretty a pretty good movie you know because with her performance so uh, i i went with katherine hepburn alice adams that's my choice for best actress runner-up betty davis dangerous agreed so my winner is also katherine hepburn for all the reasons you just listed. Like I said, I agree with all that and everything I just said. It's just a brilliant performance from her. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think all the dominoes would be setting in motion there but with giving Katherine Hepburn an, another Oscar that early on and taking one away from Betty Davis. Does then, does then Betty Davis maybe win it all about Eve later on? Does Katherine Hepburn not win for Lion and the Winner? How does it, you know, it's, it's crazy to think of where they'll go. You'll get there, I'm sure, with all these, so... Uh, you'll you'll rewrite the script to ha how you, you see fit. So next is best actor. Best actor, I went with uh, one of the gentlemen from Mutiny and the Bounty. As much as I love Victor McLaughlin's performance, I am I have to give it to Charles Lawton and his portrayal of Captain Bly. I think it's an all-time performance. I think it's one of the great villainous performances in the history of cinema. I think Charles Lawton is one of the greatest actors that we've ever seen. And this is his finest work. So I gave it to Charles Lawton for Mutiny in the Bounty. He certainly does make a very compelling villain. I really liked his performance in... Uh, what was it called? That nineteen thirty-four best picture nominee that was the runner-up on Madness the runner -up. Uh, or Henry the Eighth, the Private Life of Henry the Eighth. No, I think that's what he won for. Nineteen thirty-four one, like the year. Um, so, uh, let me look I got it. it. I got it. I got it. Oh, the Barons of Wimpole Street. Got it. He was great in that movie. I liked his performance there. So he definitely makes a captivating, compelling villain. 
And I also liked him in Ruggles of Red Gap. So he definitely also has that going for him. So my winner is the same as the Academy. Victor McLaughlin for the Informer. There's just so much anger and intensity behind that performance that I'm always captivated by him and the intensity and just torment that he brings to that character. Yeah, it's a def fine choice for sure. So next is Best Director. Best Director. And I'm going to do another, I'm going to put another Oscar domino in play here because uh, I'm, I'm very excited for you, Gabe, to get to 1940 when you'll discuss uh, Rebecca and Grapes of Wrath and all the, the debate that goes on there. Is there's a lot of people who thought that that should have been flipped with John Ford winning Best Picture for Grapes of Wrath and Hitchcock winning director for Rebecca where they, it went the other way. So I'm going to I'm going to start that feud a little early here. So I'm taking John Ford's Oscar away from him and I'm giving it to Alfred Hitchcock for 39 steps. It gives Alfred Hitchcock the Oscar that he never would achieve. This is my opportunity to do that and I'm I'm happy to. 39 steps is a wonderfully directed movie. Uh, I think it's it's just a, a brilliant piece of production. And I think of all those little uh, the, the under the line awards that we gave him or recognized them in with nominees, I think that all comes from Alfred Hitchcock's directing and, and his eye and his vision. And 39 Steps is my best director winner for 1935, Alfred Hitchcock. He's a worthy winner, but ultimately I have to go with the Academy's pick again, John Ford for The Informer. Uh, I think it's a great representation of what he can do on such a tight, limited budget. And he just directs the hell out of such a small feature and makes it seem bigger than it is. So kudos to him for that. Yep, absolutely. I mean, he's got no shortage of Best Director wins, that's, that's for sure. He's yeah. the, uh, the, leading, the leading man in that category. Yeah. So, next is Outstanding Production. Outstanding Production, i.e. Best Picture, and I went with the movie that won Best Picture in 1935, and that is Mutiny on the Bounty. I'm sticking with the history. I consider Mutiny on the Bounty one of the better Best Picture winners of all time. I think it's a wonderful affair. I would not dream of taking it out of the Best Picture canon, Best Picture winning canon, Mutiny the Bounty, Best Picture, 1935. And as much as I respect that choice, I have to go with the Best Director winner and go with The Informer. Wow. Again, I just have to think of what movie do I think told its story the best in terms of what materials it had. And I think I might go back to the informer more. In terms of how it's able to tell its story. And how it's paced better. And 
just feeling a bit more satisfying all around. Not to say anything against Mutiny on the Bounty. It's just, I ultimately deciding to go, to go with the Informer. All right, good choice. I mean, you know, anytime you're consistent with director picture, it, it makes sense. So, um, and and Ford only ha oh, he only has the one win as far as mo movies that he's won director for that won Best Picture. That was um, How Green Is My Valley. Yeah, How Green Is My Valley, which beat Citizen Kane. Which is, so, it's it, he has a very funny, uh, a funny Oscar history, as as iconic as he is. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great movie, and I. <laughs> I can't believe that I shut out The Informer, which it, it, that hurts me because I loved it. I loved it a lot, and it was a big winner this year. Uh, but, um, you know, I uh, sometimes it's got to happen. Man. I mean, my yeah. favorite movie of all time is Shawshank Redemption, and that's the biggest Oscar shutout of all time, too. So, Yeah. So um, now that we have announced all our winners... I think it's time we've gone through some interesting trivia about the ceremony. Cool. So, according to this book I read, Mutiny on the Bounty took the gold from powerful odds-on favorites. The Informer, David Copperfield, Ruckus of Red Gap, Alice Adams, and the Lives of the Bengal Lancer. Uh, I, I'm just taking this as... This is just an excerpt from a book I read on the Internet Archive about the Academy history, but I find it funny that this book considers that there were that many odds on favorites instead of just one. Right. And what I really want to talk about is the position that the Academy was in. Maybe I should have done more research on this, but I do know that there were like extensive boycotts against the Academy. So many people had quit. Like at its lowest point, there were sixty something members who were primarily producers. And like I said, um, the supporting actor and supporting actress categories would be formed the next year to try and appease some of the actors that had lost trust of. And also, yeah, I was going to say eventually some tech categories, but that would be later on. But there was a real question of whether the Academy was worth continuing at that point. It certainly, I mean, it's certainly, you can, you can mark it as a changing of the, of the guard in many respects. It's, it's definitely a transitional time period. Uh, I, as, as you, you know, I don't have all the, all the airtight research with that either, but I mean, just the fact that the next year, the supporting actor and supporting actress categories get put in play. I mean, that's for whatever the reason, that's a major step, you know, in getting more people recognized and, and, uh, appreciating more performances in these movies, because I think in many respects, the supporting actor and supporting actress awards are some of the most popular, uh, popular categories that exist today. Definitely. And I think it's interesting that it was Frank Capra who presided over the Academy during this era. And some of the choices he made and the reasoning behind them that he had, you can definitely see that same sort of populism that was reflected in some of his films, 
his most iconic films. Like that sort of desire to appeal to the people, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, I mean, Capra, Capra can be a little hit or miss for me. I mean, I, I do appreciate his, you know, his most famous films. Um, some of the other ones, when you get a little, little lower down the, the list, aren't my favorites. You know, you, you can't take it with you is not really, not really one of my one of my big ones that, that that'll go to. But I of course loved it happened one night and it's a wonderful life. Um, but yeah, he, it's it is interesting to to let someone in the industry have that much power and that much influence and, and watch the effect of what it can do. Yeah, it is. And I also wanted to talk about speaking of like. 1935 was around the year, around the time that guilds like the Directors Guild and well, it was forming, and it had joined the Actors and Writers Guild and boycotting the Academy. And this was basically also the year that, well, also I wanted to mention briefly, Dudley Nichols was the first person to refuse an Oscar. Before we had George C. Scott, before we had Marlon Brando, Dudley Nichols nice. was just saying, nope, I'm not taking this. And he's the writer of The Informant, is that? Yeah. 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 And the newsletters from the guilds said, the sooner the Academy is destroyed, the better. You should not attend. And in a last-ditch effort to fill the room, the studio sent their office staff, their switchboard operators, and gophers. Which well, wow. <laughs> should give you an idea of what kind of a ceremony that was. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a train wreck. And then I was going to say Betty Davis. And this was her win for Dangerous was widely seen as a consolation Oscar because she had lost her right in nomination for a human bondage the previous year, even though she probably didn't have much of a chance to begin with. That first round. Yeah, and then she's gonna get in the mix of that whole melee years later with uh with Sunset Boulevard and, and All About Eve and, and those two movies yeah. getting snubbed too. So she uh, seems to be a lightning bolt throughout her throughout her career. Yeah. And as for Dangerous, I think it's fine. Betty Davis is fine in it. It's not anything that we need to seek out, but I guess you could do worse. It's just kind of there. Yeah, I'll admit the, the, the I'll play the pleasantly surprised card, whereas I was expecting very little out of it. Um, but I was excited to see a best actor actress winner that I hadn't seen before, and I watched it after I watched Alice Adams. So I was pretty, I was pretty certain that it wasn't going to be better than Catherine Catherine Hepburn's performance, and she really surprised me a lot. We're to, we're to the point where I was going back and forth. Uh, I'm okay with liking that movie a little more than most do. Um, maybe it was just yeah, my viewing experience, fine. you know, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Now, I have to see, you did not put Lives of a Bengal Lancer on there, nor did I. We both 
omitted that completely yeah. from the academy. You have any thoughts yeah, on that one? It was, yeah, it's one of those movies where it's so of its time. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> it was one of Adolf Hitler's favorite movies, and while that doesn't necessarily <laughs> play into my thoughts on it, it's not hard to see why. Well, I did not know that, and I'm very glad that I omitted it now because that wouldn't look good. It wouldn't look good if I made that. If I, if I had yeah, it, it, not a good look for anyone. No, no. But yeah, it is. its time is it gets, you couldn't say it better. I mean, it, it. We talk about all these movies like Brian of Frankenstein and <laughs> and Mutant and the Bounty surviving <laughs> 90 years. Or yeah. I mean, this does not. This is this is 1935, and you know, the, let's move In on. Yeah, like the worst aspects of 1935. Yes, solid omissions by both of us, I would agree. It's not terrible, I don't think, but it that it is it is so like pro colonialist. I mean, it looks good, like it is technically sound, but there's just not sub there's not much substance there. Gary Cooper he's not that compelling when he's doing Franchatone, like, our, our my boy Franchatone in that one too. Yeah, but yeah, Gary Cooper is basically a mannequin. It's not something you need to seek out. <laughs> it's a strong it's... silent type. The strong silent type, as Tony Soprano would say. Yeah, uh, I, I, like, I actually I like Gary Cooper more than most do. I know he get he's a, yeah. he's a lightning rod on film Twitter too, but uh, yeah. I I have to, to like him. But this one, this is not where you should go to to check out your Gary Cooper. All, I would say. Yeah, check him out on something in design, something like Design for a Living. He's yeah, really good. I haven't seen High Noon yet, but I have hopes for his performance. And then I also wanted to talk about uh, um, the write-in victory for Pal Moore, his cinematography from in Summer Night's Dream. I mean, yeah, I, I gave you, I cut a little promo on this earlier. I, I just think to, to, oh, to, to, to look past this many great cinematographers putting out that great of work. And I, I actually give the Academy credit for blowing off the nominees and picking someone else, even though one of those was, was Les Mis, who I, I had in there too, he's a legendary, legendary cinematographer too. But just, it, it kind of just, the whole thing just seems like a mess. Uh, yeah. The write-in thing had to go. I mean, you can't, you can't have, have that going on. Yeah. I mean, of course it, the write-in had to go for good reason, but I'm glad that Halmore was got like a last minute recognition from his peers because I think he was deserving. Like it looks gorgeous, like I said. I love the way it looks. Yeah, I I, I as much as I don't like the write in format, I didn't really disagree with most of the write ins of this year and, and it, it it's interesting to look back and see what the Academy wanted in there instead of what was nominated or what they wanted to award instead of what was nominated. It's, it's like, I wish I could, I wish you could see that for other years too, where I don't want them in as nominees, but I'd like to know like, what was the nominee that didn't get in that the Academy most wanted in there. I wish that, that they had like a, like a survey at the end of it. So it would be interesting to hear that throughout the years. Yeah, definitely. So, some other basically these are the unmentionables so the studios pulled out funding for the awards and the academy was forced to put the bill for the big nights thanks to union efforts academy membership dropped from more than 640 
looking to the Academy for representation as a screenwriter. This one of my favorites. Uh, looking to, to the Academy for representation as a screenwriter was like trying to get laid in your mother's house. Somebody was always in the parlor watching. This is what Dorothy Parker said. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then Betty Davis's first screen test in 1929 sent studio boss Samuel Goldwyn into fits. Who did this to me? She's a dog, he ranted. Davis herself ran out of the projection room screaming. Oh, uh, boy. Um, Betty Davis insisted that she was the one who first dubbed the Academy Award Oscar in honor of her first husband, Harmon Oscar Nelson. Their marriage was a disaster. She <laughs> thought he might be gay and carried out on affairs with Howard Hughes and the great love of her life director William Wyler. Nelson tried to blackmail Hughes with tape recordings of his sexual liaisons with Davis. A lot of drama. A <laughs> lot of drama going on in 1935. Typical for Hollywood around this time. That is right. <laughs> like, we, in this modern era, we like to make fun of it, but... <laughs> Really airing it out too, you know. Everybody gets to hear yeah. about all this too. <laughs> we gotta yeah. keep this in the locker room, you know. Yeah. And then Barbara Stanwyck called Buddy Davis, direct quote, an egotistical little bitch. Damn. Yeah. Some people did not hold back. Yeah, I'm. I'm not taking sides. I'm. I'm, I'm not going to take yeah, sides. Either. I'll let them. Let them have sorted that out. I, I don't need to get involved. Yeah. This was from like this. This was like a century ago, but looking back, just being able to paint scenarios in your head about what was going on back at the time. Yeah, you know, and there's uh, a lot of that gets layered with a with an element of misogyny and you know the the crazy yeah. actress. You know, uh, they the. Those poor women took a took a beating with with the press back then with that, you know. And yeah. As 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 if all these actors really had it together, you know, all the male actors. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, just I, like I big nuts. That as well. You're definitely right about that. So, some first. Uh, Price Waterhouse. This was the first year that Price Waterhouse was hired to tabulate ballots. And. I guess some people might remember Price Waterhouse being involved in that whole 2016 fiasco with Best Picture, La La Land, and Moonlight. Hmm. So they've been doing it that long? Wow. Yeah. And as I said, Dudley Nichols refused his Oscar on political grounds. He was the first to do that. And then The Informer, despite being a flop in its initial release, was actually the first film to financially benefit from an Oscar. Like, after its Oscars wins, it made its money back within days. Now we see that, uh, yeah, we see that a lot, a lot these days. You get these, like, yeah. I know Slumdog, Slumdog Millionaire was one of those. That after it won, it just went, went crazy in the in the box office. And leading up to the awards, it really wasn't. I mean, that was almost a straight-to-DVD movie. You know, so the, yeah. the it's a, that's an underdog story in itself um, with that. So uh, that's that's cool to hear about that going on in 1935, too. So, Mutiny on the Bounty was the first film to go on reacting nominations, and it's the only time those nominations were in the same category. Well, I'm not 
Well, technically not true because there was also Tom Jones all those years later with three supporting actress nominations. Supporting ones, yeah, yeah. It was the it was the only time in the lead acting category that you had. Oh yeah, yeah. And you and won't then, see that again. You probably won't see that again because that, I think a lot yeah. of that is they just they'll just push one of them into supporting now just to try to get the extra award, as you mentioned before, with the quote unquote cat, uh, category fraud and how they campaign. Yeah. And then MGM was the first studio to campaign with ads in the press for Oscar consideration. The movie was Ah Wilderness, which didn't receive a single nomination. I honestly forgot. Like, I had heard of Ah Wilderness and then subsequently forgot about it. Yeah, yeah, I'd never even heard of that one. Wild. I'm looking it up right now, and it's another, it, it, honestly, I can kind of see why they would push it so hard, because it has, like, Clarence Brown, and it has a screenplay from Francis Goodrick and Albert ha uh, Hackett, and then Wallace Berry, Lionel Barrymore, I guess things just didn't turn out that great for it. Is Call of the Wild with Clark Gable this year, too? Yeah, that's 1935 also. Yeah. yeah, so that, I mean, that was another one that, these big production. A lot of these guys had uh, had multiple, multiple movies out in the year. I mean, we, we didn't mention that uh, Charles Lawton's also in, in Les Mis, too. So you see a lot, a lot of crossover with some of these guys. Yeah. So. Now we're going to answer questions from the audience. All right, bring it on. So Owen Daly asked, given this was the last year before the supporting awards were introduced, what are some supporting terms you wish had been nominated? And what are some you believe would uh, have been? Yeah, so I do have a, a, a few here that I that I lined out. I mean, I, I already mentioned that I do think that Franchot Tone would have been nominated for supporting, I believe, and I think he would have won. Uh, but I picked out a few that are more true supporting because then, you know, that, that opens the, the category fraud. Uh, I, I picked out three. And a big one is Fred McMurray and Alice Adams. I mean, he, while he was the, the male interest, you know, if you look at his screen time and that, um, I, I thought he could have been slid into a supporting actor slot. And, you know, I think he's one of the great actors that, has, that hasn't had the, the Oscar attention. You know, he doesn't have an Oscar nominee. He's fantastic in Double Indemnity and, and The Apartment, uh, a Billy Wilder go-to uh, cast player. And uh, I, I would have liked to see Fred McMurray and Alice Adams get a nod here. Um, and the other two are, are actresses that I picked out. Um, Madeline Carroll in The 39 Steps who kind of comes in again, similar to McMurray, though she's the, the blonde love interest in the, in the Hitchcock vessel. I, I thought she did a really nice job, and her screen time was low where she could get a, a, a pick there. And then, then finally, in, uh, Margot Graham in The Informer, who's kind of in the beginning and the end of the movie, but, but carries a, a great emotional weight in that, in that film. Uh, her, her facial expressions just really resonate. I think she's a, she's a go-to for someone in 2021 that would get a slot in for that spot. So those are three that I, that I highlighted. I I personally think that Uno, Uno Connor might have been in contention had there been a supporting category. 
and then Walter Brennan. He was immensely respected by his peers and won three awards in this category. And I could have definitely seen that happen for him for really any of the movies he was nominated for. I think about something like Barbary Coast. And then I agree, Francho Tone would absolutely be placed in supporting. Oh, well, actually, maybe not, because Baby Clyde explained in the And the Runner-Up is episode for 1935 why they wouldn't place them in supporting, even if that category existed. Basically, he said they wanted to make him a star. You don't do that by putting him in supporting. They wanted him to have the most recognition possible. And, yeah. Yeah, I did hear that episode of And the Runner-Up Is, and I, I think what what then you have to go back to is the question. And are you asking if, uh, based on 2021 Academy standards or based on 1936 Academy standards, the year when well, they moved right to it? So if you're going... If you're saying if, if the question is is this had the supporting been in the year before, then yeah, I think Baby Clyde is on the is on the nose there where where he's probably too big of a star. You probably could say the same about Fred McMurray in that in that's in that regard as well. Um, yeah. But if we're if we're looking at through the modern zeitgeist, I, I think that he would be in that supporting slot. Yeah, definitely by 2020 standards. And I'm just thinking some others that are probably coming. Oh um. WC Fields, I guess by 2020 standards would be a supporting contender for uh, David Copperfield, but if he would only contend in lead by 1935 standards because he was a bigger star. And I'd like to say you, you'd want one of the Marx brothers maybe to get a look at one point, but if you just look at how, how the Academy treats comedy throughout the years is that has not improved from 30 from 1935 yeah. to today so it's probably like oh, i guess i guess with borat getting a, a, a supporting actress nod this year there's some steps in that direction but there's been so many wonderful comedic performances over the years uh, you know whether it's bill murray or, or whoever or whoever you might pick that really get, you know kind of got snubbed on those and um you know i i it's it's interesting to think but i, I bet you they never really came close yeah and yeah so joey r asked did bride of frankenstein deserve more love or just academy setting precedent early of not recognizing horror movies enough joey r one of my best picture cast counterparts there you can hear him oh, over yes. on, you can hear him over on best picture cast with us as we go through all the the best picture winners uh, Joey, I think you know if you if if you've gotten up to this point here, we have nothing but love for Bride of Frankenstein. It is a wonderful film. It transcends the genre. Uh, I think I can speak for both of us when we say that it absolutely should have gotten more love than it got. Yeah, it definitely deserved more recognition. It's it isn't just a genre film. It works as a movie all around like i heard someone say that if if hereditary was just a drama about family loss it would have gotten so much more recognition but it was passed over because it was a horror film and they don't like horror films i feel like you could say that about many horror movies 
Like if it was just straight dramas, they would have gotten more recognition. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff we just said about the comedy genre certainly applies to the horror genre, probably even more so. Yeah. And yeah, this is an early example of it that will continue over the years. So, any final observations you want to make about this year in movie, 1935? I Listen, I, I thought it was a great year. I'm really happy with, with not just the list that I put together, but the list that you put together, Gabe. I thought our differences were, um, were well thought out, and, um, you know, it wasn't... I wasn't uh, screaming and yelling at anything that, that you did as opposed to I did, and I think vice versa. It, it was, a, it was a, a, a pleasurable year to do. I mean, you know, I, I feel for you guys in 1929. That must have been a, a tough uh, It was hard. Deal. You know, you'll have some tough ones moving forward. This is quite the undertaking here with alternate Oscars, but uh, a really great idea and a great, uh, a great product going out there. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting yeah. to see how all this comes together moving forward. Same. Same on your end as well. And yeah, I would agree. 1935 was a pretty great year for movies. Like, there's just so many underrated gems, and just the more obvious stuff holds up. And even the less good stuff is at least interesting to talk about on some level. Yeah. <laughs> like, the lives of a Bengal answer is at least a good. A fascinating study of how our, of how things have changed. Yeah. And yeah, I like this year, and I'm glad I was able to visit it. So, um, Kieran, how do we find you on social media? Sure. And your podcast? Absolutely. The podcast is Best Picture Cast. You could uh, find me at, at Best Picture Cast on Twitter. We're also on Instagram and uh, and Facebook as well. Letterboxd. I think we have going. It's we, we pick a different Best Picture winner each week. We bounce all over the timeline. We, uh, we really deep dive it. It's me and usually two or three other co-hosts. We, we rotate in and out who does what. And uh, we do a, do a couple other fun picks here and there. We have little social media tournaments to vote on, on either horror movies or bad movies or uh, animated movies. We pick a different one each kind of each season. So uh, we, we do 15 movies at a time in each, in each season, and then we rank them at the end of 15. Ultimately, we'll have all 92 ranked amongst us. It's it's uh, it's a good time. I'm I'm happy to uh, to be a part of it and a part of this this film Twitter community and everything. It's met a ton of great people. Um, at Best Picture Cast, you can get me. Come DM me. I, I'll always answer to, to rip apart my not list of nominees here. I, I would love to hear your thoughts and everybody's thoughts. So, Gabe, thanks so much for having me on, man. It's uh, it's it's been fun, and uh, I love what you're doing here. You're welcome. Thank you back. It's been great talking to you about this and i've listened to a couple of your episodes and i really like what you do like it's a neat concept and you're awesome yeah thanks, so man. yeah so definitely check out the best picture cast all the info will be in the episode notes once this episode is published so as for me you can find me on twitter at gabe the joker with two underscores you can find me on Instagram at Gabe Warren with an underscore. You can find me on Letterboxd at Mr. Hulo. And then you can find the Alternate Oscars website on Twitter at Alternate Oscars. I am also a contributor for Keith Loves Movies, so stay tuned for more reviews from me on that website. And definitely go check out some of my colleagues on that website as well.
Be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake. Until the next episode, sit back, relax, cheers, and enjoy, and thank you for listening to the alternate Oscars.